Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.
Son of a bitch! I'm here, y'all. I am here, and I am ready for a phenomenal show. Ugh! Sorry for the long intro. Had to make sure all of my stuff was ready. And even though we had a really long intro, I can assure you, all of my stuff is not ready. <laughs> oh, man. Mm. Something stuck in my teeth, and the show is not in order, and I'm a complete mess. Um, I was tweeting earlier today about how the brain is so weird, because when I woke up, <clears throat> it was playing a song I hadn't heard in, like, over a decade. And that that fascinated me. <laughs> it fascinated me that my own brain was, like, going through songs I hadn't heard in a decade. And I woke up, like, mid-song. I don't even know how that's possible. How is it possible that my brain is, like, mid-song for a song I haven't heard in a decade when I was asleep and waking up? I don't get it. But anyway... Um, I've been thinking about that all morning, and um, a lot, you know, you guys had some interesting theories on that front um, as to why that happens. Some people were like, oh, it's because your brain is like doing spring cleaning, like getting rid of the things that uh, you feel like you don't need anymore. Somebody said, oh, no, it's, it's the, not the song itself. It's that you were dreaming about a moment when you heard that song from when you were younger and, you know, your brain got interrupted when you woke up. So there's a lot of like really good explanations, but I don't know, man. I think I'm a fan of the dreams are completely random theory, to be honest with you. I re I think I'm, I'm a fan of that theory. Um, but you know, who knows? I could be wrong. Um, am I just going to do the show today without putting anything in order? No, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to, uh, think I'm going to put it in a little bit of order as I'm doing the intro and talking to you guys now. Um, so Joe Biden is still pushing for a bipartisan deal for infrastructure. We're going to make fun of that relentlessly. Um, we have the Flynn coup thing, which was big. Uh, Nina Turner is just cleaning house in, with a poll uh, in her district. She's, of course, running for Congress. Real, real reason to uh, to celebrate on that front. I mean, I, I haven't seen numbers like that maybe ever, maybe ever. Um, oh, I'm definitely going to do the the um, Rick. Why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Rick Wi Rick Wilder? No. What the fuck is his name? The guy who we make fun of like more than anybody else. Well, whatever. This douchebag even though he's anti-vaccine. Rick Wiles, there you go. This douchebag who's anti-vaccine and has all these conspiracy theories about vaccines, he, um, he caught COVID. <laughs> he's got all these, uh, you know, COVID truther ideas too, like it's God's punishment or, or whatever the fuck. Um, he got COVID, so there's that. <laughs> um, Biden is also starting to uh, make his excuses for why nothing else is going to get done, um, and it really, it really is pathetic, if you ask me. I also want to talk about this Naomi Osaka thing. I don't know if you guys saw that, but it, it piqued my interest. Women's tennis player, highly ranked, like number two in the world, 
and she pulled out of um, the French Open, which is a major. And the reason she did is fascinating. So there's that, all that stuff and much more. All right, let's go ahead and get started. I don't want to waste any more time on the intro, and, but I'm going to do that with something a little bit out of left field. I don't know, probably none of you guys are expecting this, but this is a conversation that needs to be had, and um, perhaps my lack of filter is going to get me in trouble here, but I, I, I think that this needs to get out there. So anyway, um, let's start by talking about the hill. I have to tell you guys, I don't know how much of this I'm supposed to say. Um, I don't want to get anybody who I'm close to in trouble, but listen, this is all out there for you to see with your own two eyes. It's something that I realized and recognized, and so I'm going to talk about it because I think it's gross. So um, as you all know, Crystal and Sagar just recently left the Hill. They're going independent. In my opinion, that's where they should have been all along. I mean, they always had the ability and the talent. Um, you know, when you start something under the wing of a company, it could feel like you have more security. But, you know, if my dumbass could make it in this format, Crystal and Sagar obviously could make it in this format. So I'm very happy for them. Um, now, The Hill, which, of course, is the company where they – did Rising, the corporation where they did their show, Rising. Um, the Hill YouTube channel pulled down Crystal and Sager's farewell video after they left. So they only left it up for, what, two days, three days, something like that, before they pulled it down. Now, I also happen to know that uh, when Crystal and Sager planned um, their exit, everything was relatively amicable, you could say, but um, they had everything organized and structured and ready to go. And there was a lot of thought and, and dedication that went into making some of these decisions. So they had the title for their video all set and ready to go. They had, um, you know, the, the order ready to go. So in other words, their exit video would be the first video of the day for that show, and it would be premiered. And of course, when a video is premiered, and when it's the first video, typically that video does very well. So they had their title ready, they had the video ready to premiere, and then behind the scenes, somebody decided, let's change the title to something incredibly vague that has no reference whatsoever about how Crystal and Saga are leaving. The title was like, you know, Today on Rising or some shit. And they removed it from a premiere. They removed it from a premiere. Now, if I'm not mistaken, most of the time, if not every time they do a show, the first video is premiered. So they removed the video from premiere, made it a regular video, changed the title to something incredibly vague in general to make it sound like Crystal and Sager weren't leaving. But it gets even worse. There were moments where they turned the comments off. And there were other moments where they turned the likes and dislikes off. I don't know the specifics uh, in terms of behind the scenes at corporate media, at the Hill, but there was obviously some sort of tug of war going on. And this doesn't take a genius to figure out. All you had to do was watch what was happening. Of course, I was watching every step of the way. And now, 
two days later, three days later, they pulled down their farewell video. So in other words, now they're trying to make it. So if you tune into Rising and you see other hosts, you're like, okay, I don't know where Crystal and Sagar are. I guess they're just on vacation, taking a day off. Maybe they'll be back eventually. But I guess I should stay and watch the show. It's a very sleazy, underhanded attempt to try to dupe the audience into thinking that what just happened didn't really happen. But it gets even worse. It gets even worse. They cut a brand new promo video for the show after Crystal and Sagar left. Now understand, Rising is Crystal and Sagar's baby. They came up with the idea. If they're leaving the hill, the right thing for the hill to do is very simple. The right thing for the hill to do is to give them, you know, the send-off of royalty. Hey guys, we love you. Just so you know, you're irreplaceable. You built this amazing thing, this amazing show on this channel and made it what it is. It's never going to be the same without you. You know, here's a cake. We're going to miss you. Um, and you know what? We're going we're gonna to change the branding of the channel away from Rising with Crystal and Sock. We're not going to have Rising anymore. We're going to change the name of the show and have a new show because we can't replicate what you guys did. You guys are unique. You're special. You're your own thing. Nobody can fill your shoes. It's not possible. Instead, like I said, they tried to bury the fact that they left, change the title on the video, change it from a premiere to a regular video, turn the comments off and on, and then cut a fucking promo the day after they left. The promo trying to say like, hey, don't go anywhere. Please don't go anywhere, audience. Don't go anywhere. Don't be mad. We're, the, we're one of the top news shows on YouTube, and that's never going to change. Never going to change. It was Crystal and Sagar who made it the number one show on YouTube. Now they're not there. What do you mean that's never going to change? By the way, in the promo, they put a lot of people in the video who definitely don't want to be in that video. They put Shoe on Head, for example. They put Matt Taibbi. They put a number of anti-establishment voices in the promo as if those people signed off on the fact that, yeah, Crystal and Saga are leaving, but I want you to stick around and watch whatever the fuck else is going to, you know, take the time slot at the hill. Go talk to them. My guess is they wouldn't have that opinion. And by the way, they also threw in clowns like Madison Cawthorn in the video, which goes to show you that whoever's behind the scenes making the decisions now has no idea what the essence of the show Rising was. If you're putting Madison Cawthorn in the same video as Matt Taibbi and Shu on that, say anti-establishment, you're not getting the gist of the show. You don't even understand the basics of the show. You don't get the framework of it. So I, listen, that's a sleazy, underhanded thing. Soon, right after they leave, you cut a promo for the, for the new show, which is the same label. That's gross. Now, now I'm in a position... Since Crystal and Sagar are out at the Hill, I'm in a position to tell you guys my experience in dealing with corporate media behind the scenes. So Crystal and I, of course, we started the podcast, Crystal, Kyle, and Friends. And, you know, the idea behind it is very straightforward and very simple. I respect Crystal as an interviewer. I think she's phenomenal at it. I also respect the fact that she seemingly has created this lane for herself where she has one foot in the new media world and one foot in the official world, which sort of gives her access to a lot of very big-name people in terms of uh, interviewing. And so we got together. We decided to do a show. And, um, you know, it, in many ways, it's, it's a match made in heaven. And, um, but there were pressures behind the scenes that you guys didn't know about. So Crystal had gotten permission to do Crystal, Kyle, and Friends, and we had gotten permission 
to put the podcasts on YouTube. And any of you who are um, paid subs to our Substack, you know you pay $5 a month and you get the video on YouTube a day early. Everybody else gets access to the free audio a day later. But the first, um, was it the first or the first two or three or something, Crystal Kylan Friends um, podcasts were free videos on YouTube. Well, even though Crystal had gotten permission to put it on YouTube, immediately after our premiere, the episode with Marianne Williamson, which did phenomenally well, by the way, I haven't checked the numbers now, but it's got to be over 300,000 views on that video, um, we were told that if we put the second episode on YouTube, there could be litigation. There was a lawsuit threatened. After Crystal had already gotten permission to put this, to put our show on YouTube, whoever is one of the higher-ups there took a look at the fact that we had a gigantic launch with over 300,000 views. And they did an about-face and said, if you put that second video up there, there could be litigation. We might sue you. Now understand something. This is after I told an audience of hundreds of thousands of people who watched that inaugural episode, this is how it's going to work. Pay, for the, uh, pay through the Substack, $5 a month, you get every video on YouTube. Um, and then for people who don't pay, you get the audio version for free on any podcast platform. And you don't have to pay anything. It's just available. So after I told hundreds of thousands of people this is how it's going to work, there's a lawsuit threatened. If you put that second one up, we might come after you. Well, of course, panic sets in. And, um, you know, everybody's losing their mind. And I'm a man of my word. I'm a man of my word. I told you guys it's going on YouTube. So guess what? It's going on YouTube. I'm not going to let some nameless, faceless, corporate douchebag determine what happens on my channel when I've never even had a conversation with any of the higher-ups at the Hill. Why would, I let them, why would I let them control what I do? Now, does that put Crystal in a weird situation? Of course it does. But I'm the one who's making the decision. It's not Crystal. What are you going to do? Can't sue me. I'm not in any sort of contract with you. And if you go after her, it's not going to work because she didn't make the decision. I'm making the decision. So anyway, there was basically a standoff. And at the last minute, the higher-ups at the Hill backed down because I guess they knew that we weren't going to fold. And so we posted it, and nobody knew about any of that stuff behind the scenes. But it was a very tense moment. It was a very, very tense moment. And obviously, it was incredibly tumultuous for everybody involved, but definitely the most tumultuous for Crystal. Um, but I haven't even gotten to what I think is the worst part yet. So again, Crystal and I get together, decide we're going to do this podcast. We're really excited for it. The format of the podcast is incredibly ambitious, the way we went about structuring it. Here's why. Guys, we know, Crystal and I know, the amount of money that people with similar public profiles make when they do their podcasts. And the bottom line is this. If we were to accept advertisers, we would get paid, son. We would get paid. And there's a variety of ways you can do uh, advertisements. You could do the the read-off advertisements, uh, or you could do the traditional YouTube advertisements, which in my opinion are nowhere near as bad as the reading advertisements because the YouTube advertisements, there's a buffer between you and the advertiser. So in other words, Google has a marketing team that deals with the advertisers, and I never have to talk to an advertiser ever. So I really don't have a problem in principle with the YouTube ads because I never have to talk to 
any of the advertisers, so there's no conflict of interest. I don't feel beholden to anybody on that front. But we decided, when it comes to Crystal Kylan Friends, we're going to be unique. And we said, let's go all in on this idea of small dollar donations and small dollar subscribers. So not only did we forego YouTube advertisements, which again, I don't have a problem with in principle, but we did forego YouTube advertisements, we also decided we're going to forego all ads. So in other words, the only way this thing works is if you guys like it enough and believe in it enough to pay the $5 a month to get the video a day early. The only way this works is if enough people think it's worth $5 a month to see the video of our podcast. So I'm not going to lie to you guys. We're making probably 25% of what we could make when it comes to the money with this podcast. But you know what? We made that decision. We don't care. We don't care because we believe in something above and beyond the, the ad model because that's what new media and independent media is supposed to be all about. It's supposed to be about the people. It's supposed to be about regular folks. It's supposed to be about small dollar donations saying, hey, we believe in you guys, and so we'll pay the $5 for the video because, you know, this is how you decided to fund it in a, in a more pure way. Well, guess what? After we already made that decision, what happened? Crystal was told after the fact, oh, by the way, you're not even allowed to acknowledge the existence of Crystal Kyle and Friends, your other podcast, when you're doing the show Rising on the Hill. We made the decision to take zero dollars and zero cents in ad money. And then more than half of our potential reach is cut out. So understand, I don't know how many YouTube subs I had when we launched Crystal Kylan Friends, 900,000, something like that. The Hill is in front of me. They have over a million subscribers, and I think they had more subscribers at the time that we launched. And only I'm allowed to talk to my audience to try to subscribe to Crystal Kylan Friends. She's not even allowed to acknowledge its existence. So basically, the higher-ups in corporate media broke one of our legs and told us, hey, go run a marathon. That really pissed me off. And then to put the cherry on top, to show how dumb the higher-ups are, I was banned from rising. You, I don't know if you guys have, have you know, noticed this or anything, but I haven't been on rising since Crystal Kylan Friends has become a thing. That's because the higher-ups in corporate media, at the Hill, decided arbitrarily, well, now he's banned from coming on Rising. So that also shows they just don't know how, how this stuff works. They don't know that when it comes to new media, when it comes to independent media, it's not a zero-sum game. If, if you talk to others and they talk to you, it actually is good for everybody. They don't know that or they don't care or they're too fucking stupid. But I think really the thing they're afraid of is what if he comes on Rising on the Hill and he pitches Crystal Kyle and Friends, the podcast, for people to sub on Substack. We can't have that. That made me absolutely furious. Absolutely furious. Imagine launching a podcast saying, we're going to totally rely on the people, and then your access is restricted to more than half of the potential people who could sub. 
that, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly what dealing with corporate media is like. That's exactly what it's like. And I don't even have, like, I'm just telling my personal story in dealing with these vultures behind the scenes. I don't even have the direct stories that I'm sure Crystal and Sagar have of, like, they cover an important story, and then some corporate higher-up gets a phone call from one of the donors that gives money to the Hill, one of the advertisers that gives money to the Hill, and then management turns around and says, you can't talk about X, Y, or Z because we're getting calls from people who give us money. I don't even have that degree of insight, that level of insight, because I wasn't as intimately involved with it. But what I do know is the very little that I was tangentially involved with corporate media, they're just as bad, if not worse, than you think they are. They're stupid, they're arrogant, they're restrictive, and they try to break your knee and tell you to go run a marathon. So anyway, this is my long way of saying, for the love of God, please, please, please support independent media however you can. Again, if you want to sub to Crystal Kyle and friends, link is in the video description box. If you pay the $5 a month, you get the video. If you don't, it's okay because you still get the audio for free the next day. And of course, you get the short teaser clip of the video. But pay the $5 a month. It really helps us out on Substack. We made the decision to forego all ad money. We could be making way more money, but we decided to build something better and more pure. And corporate media punished us for that and cut off our access to more than half of the potential audience. So support independent media however you can, whether it's Crystal Kyle and Friends, whether it's Crystal and Sager's new show, Breaking Points. Subscribe to them on YouTube. Uh, become a member. I'm not sure what their package is like in terms of the, the perks, but you could check that out and subscribe to them. They have a $10 a month option, and you get a bunch of stuff with that. Um, support independent media however you can, because the alternative – the alternative is what I'm describing to you. These vicious, faceless corporate goons who try to use you as a puppet and control you in really nefarious and disgusting ways, and they undercut the host in every way imaginable. And that's exactly what my experience was like behind the scenes. So listen, if you talk to Crystal, if you talk to Sagar, they might have a, a more, a different view than me. You know, every single word that I'm speaking here is from me, Kyle Kalinske. It's got nothing to do with Sagar. It's got nothing to do with Crystal. They can tell you whatever they want to tell you in terms of their experience. Maybe they have a more balanced experience. I don't know. But what I do know is I can tell you exactly what went on behind the scenes with me. And I didn't like a single fucking thing about it. And it reminded me why I'm so much better off for being alone for being independent, and for depending on you guys, the audience, instead of some gross chain of incompetent money changers. You know, they're useless. All they do is get in the way. A oh, final thing. Here, final thing. Did you guys know that Crystal had to beg in the early days for The Hill to allow her to put the show on YouTube? Crystal had to beg to allow The Hill to put the show Rising on YouTube. Imagine that. And then when later on 
She had already gotten the green light to do Crystal Kyle and Friends and for us to put it on YouTube. After that first episode, when they threatened us, one of the higher-ups said, and I quote, you're not allowed to put Crystal Kyle and Friends on YouTube. I own you on YouTube. They told her, you can put it there. It's fine. Then they saw how well it did. They did an about-face and said, you can't put it on YouTube. I own you on YouTube. Even though she had to beg to get it on YouTube in the first place. That is the perfect story. That's a microcosm of how terrible corporate media is. And, you know, if these people were intelligent, if they had any brain cells, they would have realized, no, no, no. Don't stab Crystal and Sagra in the back on the way out, because that might have consequences. And listen, what do you think it is when they change the title of the video, change the video from a premiere to a regular video, pull it down within two or three days, and then cut a promo and don't give them the send-off that they, they deserve, the send-off of royalty who really built that thing from the ground up. What did you expect was going to happen? What did you expect? You expect people weren't going to notice? Is that what you were, were expecting? Of course we fucking, of course we noticed. Anybody who follows this stuff in and out, of course they were going to figure out the video got pulled down. People, unless they were behind the scenes, they wouldn't have known about the title. They would have known about the premiere, though, because usually these videos are premiered, the first videos. It wasn't premiered. When you think people weren't going to notice when you turn the comments off and on, and when you turn the likes and dislikes off and on, you think they weren't going to notice the underhanded, disgusting, sleazy tricks in order to screw them on the way out the door? Of course they were going to fucking notice it, you dumbasses. Of course. And now you're fucked up. Because somebody who's incapable of biting their tongue and has no filter saw it happen with his own two eyes and has my own little personal experiences. So here I am, letting it all out. Should have acted like decent human beings. Should have done the right thing. They didn't do the right thing. And now I'm pissed. And now I'm telling you guys. And you guys determine what you want to do. You know what I'm saying? Now you have all the facts about what goes on in corporate media, what goes on behind the scenes. You can make your own mind up in terms of who deserves your your attention and your eyeballs and your watch time and your small dollar support. But God, it fucking pisses me off. God, it pisses me off. Every time I think about how we launched this new podcast dependent on the people, dependent on small dollar donors, and on a whim, they said, by the way, you have no access to more than half of the potential audience. They're not even going to know your podcast exists. They're not even going to... You're not, she's not even allowed to mention it. God, that makes my blood boil, man. Man, that gets under my skin so much. Anyway, support independent media because this is the alternative. Okay. Next. Let me pull up my Ken Klippenstein stuff. Where are you, Ken? 
Where are you, Kenzie's? This is a superb story. It's a phenomenal story. It deserves more attention, and he deserves more credit for making this happen. Okay, here we go. So Ken Klippenstein is a bit of a master troll at this point. One of the things that he does is he will send out, um, he'll send tweets at right-wing characters on Twitter, um, basically baiting them into retweeting something that they shouldn't be retweeting. So he's done it previously. I forget what the context was. Oh, you, you, remember, you know the, um, when Jack Nicholson played the character, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Colonel Jessup or whatever, General Jessup or whatever, in uh, the movie with Tom Cruise. Well, he like, took, a, took a picture of Jack Nicholson and um, sent it to various conservatives and said, like, this is my grandfather, and on Veterans Day... He would love it if you retweeted him, and then some idiot right-winger who didn't recognize Jack Nicholson retweeted it. So um, he's just a a master at this stuff. Well, he did it again. And this time, in my opinion, this one's even funnier because of who it is. So let me show you. Dinesh D'Souza, right-wing partisan hack extraordinaire, he says, Dinesh D'Souza, sir, my grandpa's a big fan of yours and is a veteran. He would be thrilled if you could retweet this photo of him for Memorial Day. Here he is as a young private first class. Happy Memorial Day. And then you got all like the patriotic emojis there. Notice who that is? That's the Lee Harvey Oswald, who supposedly killed JFK. I say supposedly because I don't know, probably some of the conspiracies are accurate in regards to the JFK one, but who knows? Anyway, Matt Gates did, uh, did the same fucking thing. Ken Klippenstein tweeted this at Matt Gates. Matt Gates put the little American flag and retweets it. Again, clearly not recognizing that that is Lee Harvey Oswald who killed John F. Kennedy. And then we also have another one, Matt Schlapp. Wow, Ken Klippenstein, it's my honor to retweet the photo of a veteran on a day we remember his fallen friends. God bless your grandfather and America. All of these right-wingers, who, by the way, berate left-wingers for, quote, not knowing history, they're retweeting a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald as if, like, you know, he's just a regular... Um, person in the military and it's like a patriotic thing to do to say thank you for your service it's so easy it's way too easy to bait these morons into this shit so anyway that was incredible from Ken Klippenstein but I haven't even gotten to the best part yet so Candace Owens decided to jump into the conversation and make a complete ass of herself Um, so she responds to Ken you are making a mockery of a day that is meant to memorialize men that died so that you and other anti-American leftists can laugh at their sacrifices by photoshopping a murderer into their uniforms. You are deranged, as is any person applauding your efforts. So that's her being, you know, a triggered little snowflake and whining. And Ken responds to her, I love this response, would not have guessed you cared so much about being politically correct. Burn, son. Flip her ideology right back against her. Well, she responds and further embarrasses herself, and Candace Owen said, It is not political correctness to have a soul and a modicum of decency. Reminder, these men died, the majority of them on foreign soil, so that you could be free. You do not Photoshop murderers into their uniforms so that you can have a laugh. Ken responds, I, for one, believe in free speech. Wrecked, son. 
wrecked. But I, I'm, I'm glossing over probably the funniest part of this, which is Candace Owens was stating in a very confident way that she apparently thought Lee Harvey Oswald was photoshopped into a U.S. military uniform. He wasn't photoshopped. He was in the U.S. military. And she said it twice. She reiterated it twice. That, that perfectly sums up Candace Owens. Because she's really confidently and arrogantly asserting something as if it's factual and she couldn't be more wrong in every imaginable way. Take that and apply it on every single fucking issue and I give you Candace Owens' career. That's Candace Owens' career in a nutshell. And then listen, the point that Ken Clemenstein is making about political correctness. Finally, somebody else is making the same argument I've been making for years. I want everybody to make this argument. I don't want the left response when the right bitches about, um, you know, political correctness and the anti-free speech people on the left and the social justice warriors. I don't want the left to respond like, you're wrong and those things are good. Like, it's good to restrict speech. It's good to be politically correct or whatever. The argument I always wanted the left to make is, you guys are anti-free speech. You guys are anti-edgy jokes. You guys are the authoritarians. Because, listen, there's so many examples of this. Uh, my favorite one from, uh, you know, recent times is the little Nas X thing where he created the Satan shoe, and there was such a giant backlash, you had Republican figures literally calling for him to be canceled. So these are people who define themselves as warriors against cancel culture, and then the second they see something they don't like, they're first in line to say, cancel them! So that's always been the response. The response isn't like, you're incorrect in attacking social justice warriors because social justice warriors are good. The response is, you're the biggest fucking snowflakes of all of them. You're the trigger little snowflakes. You're the little bitches. I mean, imagine getting angry over a hilarious and awesome troll like this. What Ken is doing is making fun of these people, but also exposing that all this like, over-the-top troop fawning and adoration. It's an act. They're putting on an act. These guys don't spend a second thinking about our troops. It's just mindless drivel. It's just overly patriotic garbage to virtue signal. This is the right-wing version of virtue signaling. I love the troops, and I think you don't like the troops as much as me. I love them so much that I'll, I'll talk about how much I love them on a regular basis while I keep sending them to war endlessly. But uh, forget about the war thing. I love them. And I'll, all I, I can prove that I love them because I have a bumper sticker and I say I love them. Yeah, you love them so much that here, here's a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald. And you didn't even realize it was Lee Harvey Oswald. You're totally unfamiliar with history. And you, you want so hard to virtue signal that you hit that retweet button because you thought this is a great example for me to look like I love the troops more than everybody else. Retweet. Hacks. Every last one of them are hacks. I don't want to hear a goddamn word from anybody on the right about edgy jokes on the left. If, if I had my way, everybody on the left would be, you know, doing edgy jokes and trolling like this because it's fun. It's fun as fuck, and it exposes the silliness and the hypocrisy and the self-importance of these right-wing goons. You know, I mean, you want to support the troops, be against all the wars. Be against all the wars. Call for bringing them home. Call for... Um, better funding of the VA, call for, uh, on top of 
you know, doctors for everybody. We should have mental health professionals for all. That should be fully funded. You know, this is how you would care for the troops. There's like 20 soldiers that commit suicide every day. What are these guys doing about it? They're not doing much. They're just virtue signaling on Twitter about how much they love the troops. And oops, look at that. I retweeted Lee Harvey Oswald. My bad. So Ken is really the goat at this kind of trolling. And uh, he broke Candace Owens' brain because she deleted some of those tweets. Because when you catch him in that hypocrisy, and I have a similar story with that too. I don't know if you guys remember this, but remember when originally all of my old tweets got dug up? A lot of you guys don't know this, but you know who originally dug them up? Mike Cernovich. Mike Cernovich. And they ran an article in a hack right-wing smear website. And they, you know, they called me sexist and racist and, you know, every ist in the book. And basically my response to it was like, do I, I stand by some of the stuff. Did I say fucked up stuff as well that I don't stand by? Sure. I mean, who doesn't? I'm an idiot. I've always been an idiot. But I, my argument was, don't be a little snowflake bitch. Get over it. I believe in free speech. And I believe in edgy jokes. So you can piss off. And you guys claim to be all about free speech and edgy jokes until you see somebody on the left who does it. Then all of a sudden, it's, you know, we're going to come after you. So I basically flipped their standard on them. And you couldn't catch me in any sort of hypocrisy on that because I've always had that position. I've always been vocal about it. And so they came after me. And I was like, wow, you guys are getting triggered by things that were said a decade ago on Twitter? That's cuck behavior to me. I guess you don't believe in free speech. I guess you don't believe in edgy jokes. Get over it, Snowflake. And what happened? Mike Cernovich went from attacking me to eventually following me on Twitter. He had blocked me, then I called him out for being a bitch for blocking me, and then he unblocked me, and then he followed me. So in other words, I made them heal. Because you know what? It's all bullshit. If you puff out your chest a little bit and you make a case, you never know what could happen. And this is Ken doing some edgy jokes, having fun with it, not backing down, exposing their hypocrisy on all this free speech. You know, we're in favor of edgy jokes. We're against, um, you know, political correctness. Okay, well, let's see you live those values. Stop whining about an awesome troll, a Lee Harvey Oswald joke. Get over yourself. Don't be ridiculous. And apparently something in that argument landed, and so she deleted the tweets and was embarrassed. Damn right you should be embarrassed. Damn right. So anyway, well done, Ken. This was awesome. Let's see a lot more of this. All right, next. So this is a video that blew up a couple days ago. Um, we have Mike Flynn and oop, my microphone is sort of falling all over the place. No pun intended. Don't make a sex joke. Um, I don't know if anybody would have interpreted that sexually. So the fact that I said it made it more likely people would interpret it sexually. Anyway, I digress. Um, so he was at some QAnon event, which is creepy and terrible and sad enough on its own. And look at the moment he gave us. Marine, I want to know why what happened in Minamar can't happen here. Oh, 
So many parts of that are hilarious. First of all, Minimar. 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 Now, I can only make fun of that guy so much because I also mispronounce it. I always say Myanmar because that's how it looks like it's spelled to me. That's the phonetic spelling but, or phonetic pronunciation. But apparently it's Myanmar. That's the correct way to pronounce it. But he says Minimar. Um, so for those of you who don't know, there was a military coup in, I was going to say Minimar, Myanmar. And very straightforward question to a former general. Why can't that happen here? And he, he's like, there's no reason it should happen. I don't want to be accused of making an overly corny argument here, an overly cheesy argument, but that is the most un-American thing you could possibly say. I mean, the whole idea of this country, we're supposed to have checks and balances. We're supposed to have a democratic process. And he completely argues for just ripping up the Constitution here. That's what this is. That's what this is an argument for. What if we totally ripped up the Constitution and acted in an authoritarian fashion and had a a military coup and completely changed the nature of this country in every imaginable way? He's just casually like, yeah, we should do that. By the way, why does he believe that? Because he supports Trump. He's a big Trump supporter. He loves Trump. And he's definitely convinced himself that the various conspiracy theories are accurate and that, like, Biden somehow stole the election. And so now, in his mind, he probably feels like, no, 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 I'm restoring democracy if I do a military coup and install Trump as president. But no, you're not restoring democracy. You've fallen for obvious charlatans and conmen and, and frauds. And you would be the authoritarian. You would be the tyrant. You would be putting him in to be a dictator of the United States of America. If somebody on the left said this, they would never, ever, 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 ever let it go. They would be like, look at these guys, the most un-American people in the world. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in our constitutional republic. All they're about is raw power, exercising raw power. They would never let it go if a lefty said this, ever. But he says it, and it's incredibly casual. I mean, listen, this QAnon stuff is wild, dog. It's wild. And we have numbers later on in the show. I'm not going to touch on them now. But just know, a scary percentage of the Republican Party, of the Republican base, believes that Trump is the, quote, rightful president. So this, I mean, this is like the flirtation here with some truly scary positions is, uh, should concern you. It should. Just like the polls on what happened on January 6th, how a freakishly high number of Republicans say, oh, no, that was Antifa that stormed the Capitol. But then they turn around, and when it comes to investigating the event, they're like, definitely don't investigate it. If they really believed it was Antifa, they would totally be for an investigation. So it's just the things that people will rationalize to get the outcome that they want. I mean, this is classic ends justify the means stuff. They believe Trump should be president, so anything to get to that point is okay. 
Do I have to totally destroy the United States of America and our, every process we have in this country and every institution and every organization? Yes. But I don't care because I prefer the outcome. There's even a report. Now, this one, guys, I've got to be honest, I don't believe this one. I think it's too much. But there was a report that Trump thinks he'll be put back in as president by August. That's what these guys at this conference think as well, all the QAnon people. You know how they keep moving back the date for Trump to get in office? And they've done it like a thousand times already. Now they're saying, oh, by August, Trump will be back in office as president. Some of these people really believe this. I don't know if Flynn does. Again, the report is Trump does, but I'm skeptical. Like, I don't know who the reporter is, and it might be some person who was Russiagate obsessed to and was wrong on everything then. So I'm not sure I believe it, that Trump believes it, but it's part of the QAnon stuff. And there are plenty of people who do believe it, that Trump will be back in office by August. And I mean, the only way to make that happen would effectively be to do what Flynn is saying here, do a military coup. See, I think the biggest takeaway here is that none of the people in that room, and Flynn himself too, none of these people have actual principles and, have, and, and care about a democratic process above and beyond a partisan outcome. And that's a terrifying and devastating prospect right there. Because you have to, if you're going to have a country, if you're going to have a democracy, if you're going to have a system that functions, you need everybody to buy into, in a principled way, a process over the potential outcome. So in other words, if the process is fair and square and it leads to the person I don't want winning to winning, you have to look at that and say, okay, well, I got to get him next time and I got to color within the line. These guys want to throw out the whole system the second they don't get the outcome that they want. And that is the most authoritarian impulse you could ever have, ever. And they don't care that once you open that door, there is no going back. And then if you guys think your side can do it, who's to say that the side you don't agree with can do it? Of course they could do it. If you could just override the process and do what you want, anybody could override the process and do what they want. And then we're in no man's land and we're in devastating territory. So... Man, this is, this is bad. This is bad. This guy was a general, man. This guy was a general. And by the way, he tried to clean this up after the fact and came out and said, no, I didn't, I didn't want to call for a coup or anything. But you did do that. You did do that. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't do that. You did it. We have it on video. What are you talking about? So I'm actually happy, though, that he's bullshitting about it because at least he's not doubling down and being like, yeah, you heard what I said. That's what I want to do. Okay, that would be even scarier. So happy he's backing off of it a little bit, but there is a large number of people on the right who are just sort of openly authoritarian and would sell, sell out every principle they pretended to have just so that Trump could be their daddy. And this is great evidence of it here. Okay, next. I have some out of this world news to share with you. And it's about Nina Turner and her race for the House of Representatives. So there's a new poll that just came out. Take a look at this. 
new Ohio 11th District poll, Nina Turner is at 50%, leaving everybody else in the dust, obliterating everybody in sight. We have Brown at 15%, Johnson at 4%, Smith at 3%, Barnes at 2%. Um, Now, here's the only asterisk. This is from Tolchin Research. I've never heard of that polling company. And so that makes me a little skeptical about how accurate this is. Um, It definitely seems like it's almost absurd for it to be this big of a lead. So I would be a little bit cautious since I've never heard of the polling outlet and they say that you know it's the margin of error is plus or minus four percentage points but i'm going to go ahead and say it's more than that but i mean here's the main point man even if you give her like what let's subtract 20 percent from her she's still at 30 percent like she has such a commanding lead let's do the math even though i'm terrible at math so the nearest competitor is at 15. 25, 35, 45, and then 50. So 30, she's 35 points up, 10 away from her. She's 25 points up. I mean, this is honestly Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan stuff here. I mean, this is like I'm going to destroy the field type stuff. Now, again, the caution is this. you got to run through the tape you got to run through the tape. Like, you can't take anything for granted. It's not over till it's over. And the mindset that works in a scenario like this is, okay, so you have 50% in the polls. Let's see if you can get to 65. Let's see if you can increase this lead. Just bury everybody. Just bury everybody. And Tiger talks about this all the time. If he's 10 strokes up, he wants to be 12. And he's won majors by that, you know, gigantic margins like that. So that's the mindset that you have to take into this. But I will say, this is, a, this is a refreshing thing to see. And the reason it's refreshing is that sometimes, if you're on the left, you start to think, wait a second, are we the insane ones? Are we the crazy ones? Why does nothing ever seem to go our way, ever? And what this is, is a reminder that it is definitely possible for somebody on the left to run a really good campaign to win, and then also to, as long as you maintain your connection to the grassroots, to not sell out, remain aggressive, and do proper strategy and eventually win on policies. So in other words, I know that there were a lot of people out there who were thinking, the left is never going to win anything ever again. Like even eking out a left-wing victory over the corporate Democrats. People were probably thinking, is that even possible anymore? Okay, not only is it possible, but it's possible to have crushing leads. So if it's possible for somebody on the left to win like this, to win going away, then it's possible at any level. It's possible in the House of Representatives. It's possible in the Senate. It's possible for the presidency. Now, again, it's harder once you get into a position of power because you have every single... Um, negative influence on you is put into overdrive, you know, and this is what we've seen with a lot of the Justice Democrats is they're not holding true to their original mission, 
because now they think I'll play the inside-outside game a little bit and, like, oh, if I just go along to get along a little bit, maybe I'll get more victories that way. It's not going to work. So, effectively, DC has rotted their brains and gotten them to abandon the original strategy. So it's harder once you're there because you have all these negative influences. But that would go for anybody. That would go if it was, if it was the Justice Democrats, or even if in some scenario we somehow get Greens elected all over the place or People's Party people elected all over the place. Once you get into that swamp, the swamp unfortunately changes most people unless you have a real, real firm grasp on what's going on and you stick to your principles ruthlessly. But the point is, if it's possible for us to win by large margins and lead by large margins, then it's also possible for us to eventually get victories in the realm of policy and eventually do the right strategy and actually change stuff for the better. I I think that this is a, a, a shot of adrenaline that the left needed to be reminded that, hey, man, this stuff is possible. Anything's possible. It's a point I've made a number of times in regards to FDR. People act like every single presidential election in today's day and age is going to be close. It's going to be split. You know, whoever wins ends up just eking out a victory because the country's so divided along partisan lines. People forget that FDR won four times. Four times. He won so many times the Republicans came up with term limits. And they also thought, like, we're never going to win another presidential race ever. These guys are too good. So that's possible. It's also possible the crushing margins that, like, Reagan won by or or Bill Clinton even won by some preposterous margins. That stuff is possible. So we have to stop aiming low is, is the point. Like, you should be aiming not just to win if you're on the left, but win by crushing margins. And you should be aiming not just for the incremental minor change when you're there. You should really shoot for the stars. It's like the old saying goes, which I'm going to butcher, but it's like if you shoot for the stars, you might reach the moon. Same thing goes for policy. You should shoot for the most ambitious policy possible, and then you might get a really good policy that's not the most ambitious policy possible. So um, this just makes me happy when I see this. It reminds me and reminds us that winning is possible. And... um, Let's hope not only that Nina wins, but she also is able to effectively fight off that Washington, D.C. brain rot, which takes so many well-meaning lefties and renders them toothless and weak. And I mean those words, too, by the way. I don't think that they're corrupt, the left flank. I think they're toothless and weak. And so I hope Nina does not ever become toothless or weak. I hope she stays true to her principles and can lead a really feckless, feckless and nebbish um, Justice Democrats group and coalition. So anyway, let's see it, Nina. Let's see it, Nina. Win by double digits. Make my day, and then let's start changing this country for the better. Rick Wiles is uh, an evangelical Christian fundamentalist. He's a televangelist. He's one of the most insane preachers in the country. And I mean that. We've covered a number of stories uh, of him just saying stuff. And he's 
reliably mad. He's reliably um, not connected to this earth. So he recently did this whole thing. I'm going to show you some video in a second. But he talks about how I'm never taking the COVID vaccine. And he also talks about how COVID is the judgment of God. And if people get it, it's because they're sinning and they're bad people and they haven't accepted Jesus Christ. So he does all this stuff. He's been doing it for months on his show, if not a full year. Guess what just happened? Homeboy got COVID. Now, I'm, listen, I'm not one to, to take joy out of somebody else's suffering. Um, I think in principle, that's just, it's just kind of gross. It's kind of like, kind of like not a very human or empathetic response. Um, but man, this guy was like the worst of the worst in terms of the stuff he said. Here's an example. Ah! Oh my God, this thing's not working. Here it is. He was a senior lawyer for the LGBT Bar Association of New York. The lawyers who sue churches, the lawyers who sue ministries. The ones pushing for uh, integration of bathrooms, uh, yes. uh, women, men's bathrooms, for yes. little kids even. So one of their senior lawyers for the gay rights movement died today in New York City of coronavirus. There is a judgment. I'm telling you, a plague is underway. Get under the blood of Jesus Christ. Do not be in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. I can be, look, I don't care who criticizes me. I don't care who's, who, who mocks me. I'm here to tell you that there is a plague underway. There's a death angel moving across the world, and your only safety is in Christ. Get inside Christ. I am not going to be vaccinated. Mm, I join you. I, I'm going to be one of the survivors. I'm going to survive the genocide. I'm going to survive a global genocide. The only good thing that will come out of this is a lot of stupid people will be killed off. And I'm saying stupid because they're not using their brain, their God-given brain, to make a decision for their own good. This is a report from Israel. Yeah. That the synagogues are the, the top spreaders of the coronavirus in Israel. That's, that's not a, an anti-Israel report. That's a, in the Times of Israel. They're admitting. They are admitting that the virus clusters are in the synagogues. If you go, in fact, I'll show you the next one from UPI. Chief rabbis urge Israelis to stay away from synagogues. Why well, would too? Stay out of those things. There's a plague in them. God's dealing with false religions. God's dealing with people who oppose his son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's dealing with the forces of Antichrist. My spirit bears witness that this is a genuine plague that's coming upon the earth. And God is about to purge a lot of sin off this planet. Having a little bit of tech problems, ladies and gentlemen. Bear with me. 
He has COVID. He has COVID. He's in the hospital as well. They had to cancel his show and then bring in some guest hosts. And I'm trying to not be a terrible person, y'all. I'm trying so hard to bite my tongue. I'm trying. I'm trying. Hey, you heard all of his theories. The LGBTQ lawyer who got it deserved it, deserved it. The, the Jews in Israel who got it and are spreading in the synagogues. What would you expect? You guys don't believe in Christ and you're rubbing it in and you meet at the place and you're talking about how you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you had it coming. It's a plague that God is sending to purge the sins. Purge them. Purge them. I'm going to get myself in trouble if I continue this segment. I should probably end this segment right now, but there you go, y'all. There you go. So you have one of the uh, world's most prominent I was going to say world's most prominent anti-vaxxer, but let's keep it real. The only people who know who this guy is are you guys. (laughs) And the only reason you know who he is is because I see his stuff on Right Wing Watch and I show it to you guys. He definitely has a bigger audience from us making fun of him than he does on his own. But, like, big-time anti-vaxxer and big-time – I don't even know what to call it. What would you call that? It's not that he's a COVID truther because the COVID truthers think it's not real. It's not that he thinks COVID is a hoax. He thinks that it's God's divine judgment, which, listen, leads me to want to ask him, what is the thing that God is punishing you for, Rick? What are your sins? Which sin do you think was so bad that God decided to not only give you COVID, but put you in the hospital? And also, let me ask you, at this moment, do you feel like you wish you took that vaccine? Do you feel like you wish you took it? And do you still stand by your words that this is like, what did he say about the vaccine? That it's, you're getting rid of a lot of stupid people. And I think his argument was like, if you get the vaccine, that's going to kill you. That's the genocide. And so every idiot who takes it is going to be killed off. And we're just getting rid of the stupid people. So what are you going to do? You might have learned a lesson. It's not the people who took the vaccine who are going to die in mass numbers. Probably the opposite. And you didn't take the vaccine, and now you're in the hospital and holding on for dear life. What did you learn? Did you change any of your opinions? I honestly would love to talk to him about this stuff, but but the only reason why is because I'd be curious to see how thick that wall is that you run right into when you try to introduce a little bit of reason into the conversation. How thick is that wall where all these things were just flipped on their head and I bet you he would still sort of cling to everything he said here because he strikes me as that kind of person. He doesn't strike me as the one who'd be like, you know, I've soberly analyzed the things I've said and now what I'm personally experiencing and I've decided maybe this isn't God purging the earth of sinners. Highly doubt he'd say that. Highly doubt he'd say that, but there you are, ladies and gentlemen. Again, I could have been a hell of a lot more um, mean. Let's go with that word. I could have been a hell of a lot more mean in this segment, so I'm incredibly restrained, and I'm very proud of myself for saying only the things I've said so far. Okay. All right, next. 
Here we go. So uh, this is an interesting story. It's a little bit off the beaten path. I wouldn't normally talk about something like this, but it really piqued my interest, so I wanted to bring it up. Naomi Osaka is the world's number two ranked female tennis player. And um, let me show you what happened with her. So she was fined $15,000 by tennis officials for refusing media for the sake of her mental health. The organizations that run the Grand Slam tournaments said in a joint statement that Osaka chose not to honor her contractual media obligations. So that's the first thing that happened. She was fined $15,000 for not um, talking to the media. And then within the next day or two, she withdrew from the French Open, which is a major. And the reason she cited is like, listen, I struggle with depression and anxiety, and um, it's a lot for me to handle the, the talks with the media. And so I'd rather withdraw than play and be forced to talk to the media. And, you know, she, she released a, you know, relatively short, maybe mid-sized Twitter statement on it where she announced it. And um, there's, I'm surprised at how there's a very polarized reaction to this. I see a lot of people saying, hey, listen, it's par for the course. Part of the gig is you got to talk to the media. So you got to talk to the media. And then I see other people saying, this is courageous and brave because you're being open and honest with what you struggle with and responding in the way that you think is best for your mental health. So I've seen all these different reactions. And interestingly enough, the, the people who are making the argument that she should have to talk to the media, most of them that I've seen are in sports media. So, and they admit, like, hey, we're a little biased on this front because this is really our job is to deal with this. So, but they say, no, she should have to talk to the media. The way I view this is I never understood why professional athletes were forced to do things outside of their, their core job, which is be the best professional athlete you can be. In the case of Naomi Osaka, be the best at tennis you could possibly be. In the case of Phil Mickelson, be the best golfer you could possibly be. Whatever it might be. Now, listen, there's going to be natural variation among the personalities of all these different athletes. Some athletes are going to be incredibly outgoing and want to talk to the media. Some athletes are going to be incredibly introverted and not want to talk to the media. Some are going to suffer with anxiety and depression and want to avoid the media. Some are going to have, uh, you know are going to be manic and uppity and they feed off of and use other people's energy to fuel them and so they'll love talking to media. There's going to be that natural variation. I never understood punishing the introverts or punishing the people who are struggling with mental health or punishing the people who aren't struggling with mental health and just don't want to talk to the media. I never understood punishing them for not talking to the media. Now, listen, I'm biased in the sense that I'm part of the media. So obviously, I'm not sports media, but I'm media. Um, I think politicians have an obligation to talk to the public because they represent the public. Athletes don't represent the public. And so I don't view answering questions that are usually shitty, by the way, from the media. Um, I don't view that as a necessity. I don't view it as part and parcel of her job. And honestly, I'd put aside the depression and anxiety thing. 
Because I think it would have been fair if she said, I don't suffer from depression or anxiety, I just don't want to talk to the media. Her job as a tennis star is to be as good at tennis as she possibly can and then let her game talk for itself. That's it. That's it. I don't... Now, the argument that some people make is like, no, part of the job of being a pro athlete is to keep the public interested and engaged, and so you have to be a public figure and talk to them and provide statements and give a window into your life. All I could say is I disagree. I disagree with that. She didn't sign up to be a professional commentator like I did. Part of my job as a commentator is, yes, to give you guys, you know, a view into my life, to give you guys every little thought that I have, everything with no filter, to let, let it all out. That's my job because I'm a commentator. She's not a commentator. She didn't sign up to be a commentator. She's a tennis player. So I just don't understand why people would be demanding on that front when her game speaks for itself. I just, I don't view it as um, a necessity. And I think it's really weird that, like, people would rather force somebody to talk to the media than let them do what they want. Now, if she wasn't great at tennis, that's a different question. You know, like, there's plenty of examples of people who are really good with the media, but maybe not really in the top, top echelon of their sport. Anna Kornikova is probably a good example of that. I hate to be the bad guy, but it's true. In golf, Ricky Fowler, he's good, don't get me wrong, but he's not top, top echelon, but he gets a lot of media because he has the branding thing where, like, a lot of the kids like him and he wears the bright colors and he's like a fan favorite in that respect. So there are different kinds of, of athletes, but the, the core thing that you're supposed to be doing is be good at your sport. That's it. Be as good of a tennis player as you could possibly be. Be as good of an athlete as you could possibly be. I don't care about the other bells and whistles. And if you do, I think it's a bit of a category error. So I don't think it's part of her job to, like, have to talk to the media and field their shitty questions. And they generally are really shitty. That goes for almost all sports media. I hardly ever see any incisive questions in sports media. So let, let her game talk for itself. They should really change the rules and just make it – it doesn't have to be – just make it not mandatory. The, the baseline could be, hey, we want everybody to come talk to the media, and so here's your time that you're supposed to do it. But if somebody opts out of it, who cares? Who cares? And I don't – again, I don't even think you need the argument of I'm depressed or I have, have anxiety. But definitely if she brings that up, she's like, this is why I can't do it. I have a terrible fear of talking to the public or whatever. Of course let her slot. Of course let it go. And she felt like she had to withdraw instead of dealing with the media and dealing with the public. I mean, the way I look at that is like, obviously she feels this shit in her core if she's willing to go to that extent, to that extreme to avoid the media. Obviously, there is no fake in it. And I don't even know what faking it would mean on this front. Because again, I feel like even if she wasn't suffering with mental health issues, she still should have the right to be like, I don't really want to talk to these guys. I just don't view it as part of the job description. And I don't buy the argument that, like, well, if they all don't talk to the media, then nobody would care about the sport. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. 
The real purists watch just for the sport. Just for the sport. It wouldn't have mattered if Michael Jordan never said a fucking word to the media if he was doing what he was doing on the court. wouldn't matter if Tiger Woods never said a fucking word to the media if he was doing what he's doing on the course. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's not part and parcel of, of the job. So people might assert that it is and pretend that it is. I just simply disagree with you. I just simply disagree with you. And this goes for any sport. You're not obligated to talk to them. If you, want, if you were obligated to talk to somebody, you should have become a professional talker, professional commentator. Then you're obligated to give your thoughts on everything. Outside of that, listen, and if you leave it up to the players, enough of them will want to talk because there is giant variation among people. Some people feed off that stuff. So let them do all the talking. There's no problem with that at all. So I just don't understand this draconian approach. And, um, you know, if you make the argument, hey, they're getting paid so much, so they have to do all these things. Again, I disagree. The reason they're getting paid so much is because of what they're doing on the court. So it's not like, therefore, whatever the higher-ups tell you, you by definition must do. No, not if it's unreasonable. (laughs) If it's unreasonable and if I don't think it's fair and if I don't think it's just, I'm not going to do anything the higher-ups tell me to do. And don't just point to the paycheck and say, well, because of that, you should. No. (laughs) How about that? So, yeah, I'm definitely on her side on this. But I have to be honest, I don't love a lot of the arguments that the people are making who are on my side of it when people only focus on the depression and anxiety thing, because I think that that misses the main point, which is even if she wasn't depressed or anxious, I still would defend an athlete who's like, I don't really want to talk to the media. Why? It's just not my thing. I don't want to talk to him. I'm going to go play. That is your job. That is your job, no matter how much people assert otherwise. Okay. Next. Joe Biden is doing very Joe Biden stuff. Let me show you the new thing from Politico. Biden clings to the possibility of a bipartisan infrastructure breakthrough. The president and his team hold out hope for a deal. They also believe voters will reward them for trying. Oh, that is rich. That is rich. So, first of all, voters are not going to reward you for trying to make a bipartisan deal. Nobody cares. If, if voters get a check in the mail from the federal government, not a single person would say, I refuse to take this because it only passed with Democratic votes. You can keep your money. I don't want it because it's not bipartisan. Nobody would say that. Nobody believes that. Very few people even follow the ins and outs of what's happening in Washington, D.C. It's just a comical notion that they cling to like they're children. Bipartisanship is always good because mom and papa told me that bipartisanship is always good. Yay! Yay! Not true. Oftentimes bipartisanship sucks, like when it makes bills worse or when you're agreeing to do horrible things in the first place, like endless war or deregulating Wall Street. So that's just a childish notion I don't agree with. Now, of course, the other point is the president's holding out hope for a deal. So, in other words, he's, he's acting like he believes in unicorns. Because I got news for you. Doesn't matter how much you water down an infrastructure deal. You're not getting a bipartisan. You think you're going to get 60 votes? Dog, you have like eight Democrats 
on Biden's side who are like, I'm not even in favor of what you're trying to do. So how are you going to hold the eight Democrats and then sway like eight or nine Republicans? It's literally not possible. It's not possible. So for them to say, oh, he clings to the possibility of a, a bipartisan infrastructure breakthrough, he's either the dumbest person on the planet or, here's the other possibility, and I hope this is true, he's doing this like he's pretending to do this. He knows it's not going to go anywhere, but he's pretending to make an effort to do a bipartisan deal so that he can turn around to Manchin and Cinema later and be like, I did everything I could and they spit in my eye. What do you want me to do? So now, now it's on you. Do you side with me or do you side with the people who wouldn't make a deal even almost completely on their terms? So that's one of the theories that they float in this article. All I have to say is I really, really hope that that's what he's doing because if that's not what he's doing, it looks like he didn't learn a goddamn thing from the Obama years. Because what did Obama do? All he did was start proposing Republican ideas, and then Republicans turned on their own ideas because, by, because Obama was pushing them. Like Obamacare. That's originally a Republican idea. That came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. It copies Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts. It keeps the for-profit health insurance companies in control. Obama proposed a Republican health care reform, and then they abandoned the Republican health care reform and said their new position is, we're not going to do anything. Keep everything exactly as it is. That's our idea of reforming the health care system. So they're not gonna, you're not going to get 60 votes on anything. You could come up with the cure for cancer, and you wouldn't get 60 votes through regular order. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. So seriously, either Joe Biden has cement where his brain is supposed to be, or he's just putting on a show so that he could turn around to try to get Manchin and Cinema to fall in line. But listen, either way, I'm not optimistic. Because even if he is doing that idea, I don't think he has any idea how to get Manchin and Cinema to fall in line. And that doesn't even, uh, you know, address the fact that it really isn't just Manchin and Cinema. It's like eight Democrats who perpetually are against what Biden's trying to push. They view every little thing as too extreme. So what's your plan, Joe, to get, I would totally forget about regular order because it's, again, you're not going to get anything through it. So I forget about the Republicans completely. They're useless. They're useless. And by the way, the Republican Party in D.C. doesn't even represent Republican voters who are way more reasonable according to the polls. So what do you do? Write them off. Use the argument that they used previously with the COVID relief package. My bill is bipartisan because the Republican voters are for it. And Mitch McConnell's not representing the Republican voters. Use that argument. And then you have to use the carrot or stick approach with Manchin and Cinema and the eight Democrats who want to block everything you want to do. You have to call them into your office and say, I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. It's your decision. Play politics. Let them know. You'll either be rewarded or there will be severe consequences. Ball is in your court, son. But he doesn't know how to do any of this. He's half asleep the entire day. And like I said, they already said we're not going to do anything until August. So what are we doing? He's just wasting time and making it more likely the Democrats don't do well in the midterms and not even doing anything through executive order, which... He should be doing stuff through executive orders. So clinging to a total fairy tale, Biden is. He's clinging to the belief that the tooth fairy is real if he's sincerely waiting on a bipartisan infrastructure breakthrough. Final point, 
Did you know that in order just to update our infrastructure, you need over $4 trillion in spending? I don't remember the exact number, so don't quote me on this, but I think it's $4.7 trillion just to update it. And that number is from a report like three years ago, so it's probably even more now. But let's go with that number. So you need like $4.7 trillion just to update it. The Republican proposals are less than a trillion dollars. You're not in the same galaxy of where you should be. They want to strip it of everything that includes tax hikes on the rich. They want to strip it of everything that involves the climate. They want a, a, a comical bill, and you're entertaining them? Listen, what that tells me is that's just where Biden's politics are. Like he's pretending to be for somewhat more left ideas, but in reality, he's just a moderate Republican. He sort of agrees with them. Uh, let's do a little bit under a trillion dollars and just some tweaks around the edges. Because he would rather say, I did a bipartisan bill, and the bipartisan bill sucks, than actually fight for it, push it through reconciliation, and get a $4 trillion bill or a $5 trillion bill. That's what he would rather do. Because, listen, his, his whole record shows, all of his experience shows, that's sort of where his politics are. So there you have it. Clinging to hope that there's a bipartisan infrastructure breakthrough, which is nowhere in the realm of reasonable. This is so far from happening, it's hardly even worth a comment. Okay. Joe Biden's excuses are now beginning. So here's a quote from a journalist. He was at some event the other day. Uh, This really got me angry. Biden said, quote, I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. So every step of the way, now you go back and you look at the stuff that Biden was saying when we had that runoff election in Georgia. He was very clearly saying, listen, you vote for us, we're going to deliver. You vote for us, you're going to get the $2,000 check. You vote for us and we can get a Democratic agenda through. Now he's in office and he's like, well, I, I, see what happened was, the sun was in my eyes and me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway, but ultimately what, what we saw was that you can't do the thing unless you have more of the thing. And so we got to get more people. And then when we get the more people, I'll turn around and also say that I can't do it. They said, vote for us and we'll deliver. Now they're saying, you voted for us and we can't deliver. All right, so let's run through this. First of all, Biden is trying to get the infrastructure bill through regular order. That's 60 votes. You need like eight or nine Republicans to vote with you in order to get anything through there. You're not going to get anything. Again, you could come up with the cure for cancer and they wouldn't vote for it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. So he's wasting time doing that. But beyond that, oh, we can't get anything through because I have some... 
Democrats who always vote with the Republicans. And what are you going to do about that, Joe? Whose job is it to try to get them to fall in line? You could arguably say Schumer, but it's either Schumer or Biden. Probably both of them are responsible. So what's your plan? How are you going to get them to fall in line instead of bitching in front of a crowd? It's so hard to get stuff done. Shouldn't you be working on this? Shouldn't you be behind the scenes using a carrot or stick approach? Shouldn't you be talking to them? Shouldn't you be meeting with them? Shouldn't you be asking them, hey, what will it take to get you to support this bill as it is? But he's not doing it. It's like he's been involved in politics his whole life. It's like he has no idea how politics works. You now have the bully pulpit, son. Use it. You now have the most power of any single politician in the country. Use it. Use it. But let's go a step further. Let's say you grant him all that. Oh, the Republicans are obstructionists. Oh, there's not enough Democrats to really get his own agenda through, even though he doesn't know how to fight for it and hasn't fought for it. Put that aside. Let's grant him all of that. Oh, poor Joe Biden. He's the victim of circumstance. Poor Joe Biden has a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and the presidency is Democratic. But he can't get anything Democratic done. Oh, my God. What about executive orders? What about executive orders? You have the legal authority to wipe out all student loan debt in seconds. And you're choosing not to do it. You're actively choosing not to do it. Okay, now you say to me, Kyle, that's extreme. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't believe in that. I know he doesn't believe in it, and that's a problem. But okay, why not wipe out 50000 in student loan debt? Why not wipe out 10000 in student loan debt per person? Why not do that? He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to do any of it. He doesn't want to do any of it. You know what he wanted to wipe out? One billion of the $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Because, oh, those were the for-profit scam colleges. But everybody else, you're fucked. You're on your own. He could do that himself. He's choosing not to do it. So this idea, oh, I can't get anything done. No, you're choosing not to get anything done. I can go on and on with the executive order stuff. You want to know another one? You could legalize marijuana effectively right now. Just take it off as a Schedule One substance. That's it. You could effectively legalize marijuana in the entire country like that. You know what else you could do? Every nonviolent drug offender in federal prisons, you could free them all today. Every single one. Every single one. You don't want to do it. Biden has the authority under a provision passed in Obamacare to cover everybody in this country with health care right now. At least in regards, at the very least, in regards to COVID-related bills. He could do it right now. He could do it right now. He could do an emergency expansion of Medicare to cover everybody when it comes to COVID health care bills and arguably even for just Medicare for all. He could do it like that. He's choosing not to do it. He has so much power. He could bring all of the troops home, not just from Afghanistan, not just a middle ground withdrawal that keeps contractors on the ground there. He could pull all of them out right now from Afghanistan, from Iraq, he could stop the drone. He could do it all right now. He's choosing not to do it. So he could take these excuses and shove them you know where. Because that's all these are. It's excuses. And guess what? The more you do nothing, the more likely it is you guys struggle in the midterms. The reason why Biden's approval rating was so high for so long early on is very simple. He gave people $1,400 checks. He gave people money and he expanded the child tax credit. So he did a number of decent policies. And then now as more time goes by and that wears off, people are going to be, okay, what have you done for me lately? And when the answer is nothing except wine, well, then you can't bitch and moan if you don't do well in the midterms. Because this is not what people voted for you for. You told us it mattered if Democrats win. Now you're saying, I can't get anything done anyway, so it doesn't really matter now. 
pathetic, absolutely pathetic. So here we go. Um, Big Pharma is doing everything in their power to make sure that we don't get global vaccines, to make sure that we don't have a patent waiver for vaccines. So uh, this is the Daily Poster reporting. The headline is, Big Pharma's EU ties could stymie vaccine waivers. Pharma giants have spent big on lobbying EU officials. Now European power brokers oppose suspending global vaccine patents to fight the pandemic. Um, So let me read you a portion of this here. Any legally binding suspension of global patents on vaccines requires unanimous support from the World Trade Organization's Commission on IP Rights, better known as the TRIPS Council, slated to meet June 8th and 9th in Geneva. While the United States said in May that it was finally interested in negotiating a proposal to do just that, signs suggest the European Commission, the executive branch of the EU, which has forged close ties with the pharmaceutical industry, will likely continue to oppose a proposed waiver on vaccines. Pharmaceutical interests have become one of the biggest lobbying forces in Europe, according to spending disclosures reviewed by the Daily Poster. Internationally, there's a real risk that the European Union could make this drag out, that their actions in Geneva and at the World Trade Organization could lead to a serious delay, says Kenneth Hare, a researcher at the Corporate Europe Observatory, a watchdog tracking corporate influence in the EU. Quote, that's a huge problem because time is of the essence. Now, I want to give you a sense of the extent of the problem here. Last year, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, the industry's top trade group on the continent, whose members include vaccine makers Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson, spent between 5.25 million euros and 5.49 million euros on lobbying EU officials. So understand something. They don't have the same system we have here. They more strictly regulate money in politics. Even given the stricter regulations, somehow you have between five and six million euros that Big Pharma lobbied EU officials with. So what happened was there was a giant lobbying effort in the U.S. to try to get Biden to say, I'm not in favor of the TRIPS waiver. I don't want global vaccines. And what Biden did is he said, well, I'm in favor of negotiating a waiver. He didn't say he supports the TRIPS waiver, which was presented by India and South Africa. He said, I'm in favor of negotiating a waiver. So in other words, I think he's going to water it down and make it not as toothless, but it's better than nothing. It's definitely better than nothing. Um, And then, see, the trick is, the World Trade Organization, you need to have unanimous support from the World Trade Organization to get rid of the patent protections. So you need to get every, everybody needs to be on board. Well, guess what? There are some who are holdouts. Like, for example, Angela Merkel. She's a holdout. I believe Macron in France was, like, hinting he was for the waiver, and then eventually he was like, I'm not for the waiver. So you have a number of people you have to get through. And now we're learning probably one of the main reasons why everybody's not on board with this is the influence of big pharma the money and the power that they have, the lobbyists that they have. And as I read this story, guys, I can't help but think 
This is one of those stories that undermines the entire system that we've created globally. You know, oftentimes we're talking just about U.S. politics and how corrupt and terrible our system is. You read this story and you realize every international body is a bit of a joke, whether it's the World Trade Organization, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's the International Criminal Court. A lot, it's a lot like the League of Nations, which eventually became completely irrelevant. Because it's very clear that these, they're not existing for the benefit of everybody. And since they're not existing for the benefit of everybody, they have no moral authority. You know, and, and so here we are. The U.S. president, the most powerful person in the world, says, I support a waiver and let's negotiate the terms of it. And then you have other people who are part of the World Trade Organization who are like, I don't support one. And you, you know, look at where the money is and Big Pharma is making it rain on all these EU officials and basically saying, hey, we'll give you however much you want if you block the waiver. So in other words, block global vaccines in the middle of a pandemic and we'll make it worth your while. And there are plenty of people who are saying, okay, I'll do that. I don't know how to say this nicely. It's genocidal. What they're doing is genocidal. We have a vaccine. We have many vaccines. We have the ability to vaccinate everybody on the planet. And because of money, we're going, meh, I don't know. I don't think I want to do that. And guess what? Now there's new variations all the time. There's a new variation. I think they found it in Vietnam. There was like a mix of the UK variant and the India variant. And it's a new, new variant. And like, the more you don't vaccinate people, the more variants there's going to be, the more of those there are, the more likely it is eventually our vaccines can't stop certain variants. Do you not see the problem here? This affects everybody. A lot of the rich nations think as long as we're, everybody's vaccinated here, we're fine. Wrong. That's not the way it works. And also, that's not a good enough argument anyway. Hey, everybody here is fine, so fuck everybody in the developing world. That's genocidal. We have what is effectively a cure. And we're saying, we don't want to share that with billions of people on the planet. I don't give a fuck if you want to share it or not. It's like when Jonas Salk came up with the polio vaccine and he was asked about it. He said, would you patent the sun? Of course not. Everybody needs this. This is a public good for the entire world. Of course. I'm not going to be a dick about it and hog it all to myself or get a gajillion dollars off of it. Are you kidding me? And here we are. We have the COVID vaccine. We have effectively a cure. And Big Pharma's like, no, we care more about our profits than the lives of people in developing countries. So, And this will probably come back to bite everybody in the ass. But guess what? Then we get to make another vaccine and make even more money. So the incentive structure is disgusting. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Nationalize everything involving health. The health insurance industry, the health care industry, Big Pharma. Because the incentive structure is all fucked up when you have profit as the main motive behind these systems. When it comes to health insurance, what happens? You make more money the more you deny people care. That's the incentive structure. And by the way, just so you understand, when it comes to pharma, it's tax money, tens of billions of dollars in tax money. I think it's over $40 billion that NIH spent developing medicine. And then big pharma swoops in and buys up the rights and then double charges you. So you paid for it on the front end as a taxpayer to create medicine. And then Big Pharma buys up the rights and charges you, once you get sick, to use the medicine. They're just an unnecessary, rapacious middleman. The health insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, they're just rapacious mafia middlemen. They're leeches. They're parasites. 
They just take a cut in between you and your doctor, or they double charge you for the medicine. They're totally useless. Nationalize it. Nationalize it right now. We need to nationalize it. And see what happens when you have the profit motive like this? Look at what happens. They're already making billions and billions and billions of dollars, and they're like, we want to keep making billions, and we'll block global vaccines in order to make that happen. So in other words, people, other places can't make generic vaccines and give it to their people because Big Pharma will sue them and will probably win because they say, hey, you're infringing on our patent. So they're choosing profits over trying to eradicate COVID from the globe. This undermines the entire global system. This is clearly undermines the global world order, all the nation states that are currently in existence, capitalism. It really is a story that undermines every institution. And then they turn around and get mad when people try to overthrow the system or when people have discontent or when people really want systemic reform. As if, like, we can't do any better than what we're doing now. We can't do any better than this? The dumbest thing I've ever heard. Okay. All right, where are we going, baby? Where are we going? So there are some very, very concerning numbers that came out in a new poll of Republicans. I need to share this with you. Most Republicans believe that Donald Trump is still the rightful president and that the results of the 2020 election were tarnished by illegal voting, according to a new Reuters-Ipsos poll released on Tuesday. The survey found that just over half of Republicans, 53%, think that Trump remains the true president despite losing to President Biden last year by roughly 7 million votes nationally. Even more, 61% believe either strongly or somewhat that the 2020 election was stolen from the former president. Similarly, 56% of Republican respondents said that the, president, the presidential election had been marred by illegal voting or election rigging, a baseless claim that Trump has made repeatedly in the more than six months six, since Election Day. This is incredible. This is incredible. 53%, more than half of the Republican Party, of Republican voters, say Trump is the true president, is the rightful president. 61% believe either strongly or somewhat that the election was stolen from Trump. This shows you the power of suggestion and the power of propaganda and the power of repeating something over and over. That's all Trump did here. That's it. All Trump did was insist over and over and over and over and over again, wrong, I won, illegal voting, rigged election, I won, I won. How much evidence was presented? None. There was no real evidence that was presented. There were over 60 court cases on this. Over 60 court cases. Almost every single one, the Trump team lost. And the only ones they did win, it was over procedural shit, and it had no bearing on the actual numbers. There is zero proof of illegal voting. Zero. None. Zero. And yet people believe this. So what, what about 2016, by the way? 
Donald Trump won. He became president. Obviously, he, if he lost that election to Hillary, he would have said the same thing. He would have been like, this is rigged, this is fraudulent, this didn't really happen. But he won, and so all of a sudden in 2016, there was no, he wasn't bitching about it being rigged. I won, so therefore it's fair. When I lost, it's unfair. If they were going to steal it, why wouldn't they have stolen from you in 2016 before you even became president? And now Biden runs. I get, you think the Biden people are that much more organized than the Hillary people? The guy's half dead. You think he was able to mastermind a plan that made it so that he stole the election and he won? I mean, Trump has nothing. He has nothing. This has been litigated a thousand times. Trump fundraised off this and was doing really weaselly, questionable, gross fundraising where he said it was going towards stop the steal and to get us back in office. And then the overwhelming majority of it went to pay off his fucking campaign debt, maybe into his own fucking bank account. But here we go. Over half the Republican Party, over half the voters are like, I think Trump's the real president. So he's a liar. The buck stops with him. This shows the power of propaganda. But also, listen, I do think this speaks poorly of the media because people don't trust the media at all. We're going to get to another story on that in a little bit. But people don't trust the media at all. So when the media rebuts this, a lot of people just don't listen. But... Now, you might say that's the, the fault of the people who aren't listening. It is partly their fault. They have agency. But it's also that the media blew all their credibility in a variety of different ways. Like, for example, when they pushed for the Iraq war based on lies, which they did do. When they pushed for um, the Syria attack, Brian Williams saying the beauty of our weapons is they're launching and attacking Syria. Um, like Russiagate, for example. The number of things that they got wrong, it's like, of course people were going to tune out and say, I don't trust you. You're smug elite pricks, and I don't trust you. I trust this fucking two-bit con man, real estate goon, reality star over you. That speaks poorly of everybody. That speaks poorly of absolutely everybody. So there's blame to go all around here. You blame Trump for lying. You blame the people who were duped for being duped. And you blame the media for not having any... People don't have trust in you anymore, so when you tried to rebut it, people weren't listening. But listen... This does go to show you roughly the percentage that's TFG. You know, it's like 50% of Republican voters. Now, I'm optimistic in that that other 50%, some of them are gettable. And so if you materially improve their life, if you argue to materially improve their life, if you run on those things, you might be able to win some of them back. Former two times Obama voters who flipped to Trump, you got a shot, but don't get it twisted. About 50% are TFG, and they believe in the dumbest conspiracy theories you could possibly imagine. The idea that Trump really won the election, even though there were over 60 lawsuits, and they lost almost everyone. The process worked. He had his day in court. He had his day in court a variety of times. And by the way, this reminds me of the scary situation where Trump had Sidney Powell and a bunch of other lunatics in the Oval Office, including Michael Flynn, And they were trying to convince him, you won, and maybe we should, like, do a coup. Maybe we should do whatever we can to keep you in. And Trump's lawyers were like, are you fucking insane? Are you people insane? We've been in court, and we're losing every case. He didn't win the election. Thankfully, Trump ended up siding with the people who were correct, but he obviously caused a stink in the process. There's a report behind the scenes now that Trump thinks he's going to be back in office by August. 
I don't think that report is actually true because I don't know the reporter, and it was probably somebody who was doing Russiagate 24-7, so it's probably bullshit. But there are plenty of QAnon people who think that is true, and half the Republican Party thinks Trump is the true president. So this is bad. And the way to combat this misinformation is not to just fact-check everybody into oblivion and, like, ban people from social media. No, the way to get the truth out there is to regain trust, build trust, tell the truth, and then give people the honest answers. And over time, you might be able to win back some of them. But, you know, we're not miracle workers here. So maybe, best-case scenario, only 25% of Republican voters are TFG. But right now, it's about 50%. And that's not me speaking. Those are the numbers speaking. They believe things that are demonstrably untrue, that are absolutely out of this world, and are really, really scary and pathetic. So we're in a uniquely bad era of partisan tribalist garbage. And um, these numbers demonstrate that very clearly. All right, next. Okay, guys, so um, I want to show you a new poll, Hill Harris X. This shows you which institutions are trusted and not trusted in the country. See, this is fascinating to me. The number one most trusted institution, healthcare, 68%. We're going to come back to that. Then you have local government, 65% trusted. State government, 60% trusted. Criminal justice, 56% trusted. Organized labor, 52% trusted. Federal government, only 48% trusted. And media, only 47% trusted. So the only ones there uh, where distrust outweighs trust is federal government and media. So let's go from the top here. When it comes to health care, I think the reason why 68% have trust in that institution is very simple. Number one, they trust their own doctor. They know their own doctor. They love their own doctor. They trust their own doctor. So they say, yes, I trust healthcare in this country. And the other thing I think is, a, is because we just had the free vaccine. So when you have the free COVID vaccine and the rollout is actually going pretty well now, people got a little taste of socialized medicine. And so they probably feel like, this is wonderful. I need the COVID vaccine. Over 50% got the COVID vaccine. People are like, this is working. This is good. So I think that's one of the reasons why, in the same way that like every time you ask people what they think of the police as an institution, it always polls well. I think it's a similar thing with healthcare. Even though our healthcare system is broken, even though 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic healthcare, even though it's a scam within a scam on, on top of a scam, and you have price gougers galore, whether it's the health insurance companies or the healthcare companies or big pharma. So there's a lot of problems. It needs to be fixed. But I think the interpretation people have of this, of the way this is framed is, oh, they're asking me if I trust my doctor, and they're asking me about my personal experience, and I just got a free vaccine, so it's awesome. That's my guess, but that is just speculation. You'd have to see what people were actually thinking by asking them what they were thinking when they were asked this. Um, I'm surprised by criminal justice being trusted 56%, but again, people may have interpreted that as, do you trust the police, and the police always pull well. So... That's interesting. Organized labor is overwater, not underwater, which is great to see. But least trusted, the federal government and the media. Here's my theories on this. The reason why the federal government is more distrusted than trusted, corruption. I think everybody knows that you're voting for the lesser evil every time with the federal government. They're not very responsive. They're always doing the bidding of, of billionaires and corporations and donors and not really representing the people. I think that's why they're mostly not trusted. And for the media, 
They ranked the worst of every institution, the absolute worst. I'm not at all surprised by that because they're terrible. I think they're objectively terrible. I think Fox News is Republican propaganda 24-7. So they're just liars. They have a narrative. They're just liars. That's it. They're just liars. Um, MSNBC, Democratic propaganda. They just cheerlead for the Democratic Party. They're not cheerleading for left-wing values or an ideology. They're just cheering for the corporate Democrats. And then CNN does propaganda for both wings of the establishment. And um, there's a lot of smugness and arrogance and insularity. And people don't trust the media. I don't blame them. And it's because of how terrible they are that outlets like mine, even though we're suppressed by the algorithm and our stuff does not get pumped out there, that we do okay. It's because people don't trust the fucking media. And you can't blame them because the media sucks. They suck. They don't focus on the important issues. They don't talk to you about policy. They don't talk to you about material ways to improve your life or what the politicians could be doing for you. And so here we are. They just chase the scandal of the day. They, they have a bias towards sensationalism as well. And they're unserious. And so here we are. The media is the least trusted institution in the country. And by the way, I think all of these numbers are surprising because the, I would expect under 50% for basically every institution. Because yes, generally speaking, trust in institutions has collapsed in the modern era. And that's why you see the rise of populism on the left and the right. But there you have it, guys. The least trusted institution of all of them is media. And I have to say, even though I'm technically part of the media, I totally get it. Because I do think new media and independent media is a little bit different from um, old media, even though new media is kind of also getting a bad rap now because of the way a lot of people in the field act, you know, we do sort of have a bit of a reality star feel to us at this point, which is not good. And I'm, I don't like that, but, um, without a doubt, I see where people are coming from. And it makes sense to me that the media and the federal government are ranked as the two worst. I would just also say healthcare, it's measurably terrible. So the way people interpreted it, something had to be off, but there you have it. All right, y'all, let's do two more stories real quick. So this is really, really interesting. There was a poll, again, Hill-Harris-X poll, where they asked, given what you know, do you think psychedelic substances such as magic mushrooms have medical uses or not? Look at the result here. 65% say magic mushrooms do not have medical use. Only 35% say they do. This is a wake-up call to everybody on the left. If you watch this show or you watch other lefty shows, new media, independent media shows, we have our own bubble. And our own bubble is that we start to think everybody agrees with a lot of the things that we're saying and like what we're saying is common sense. The fact of the matter is, no, the the overwhelming majority of the country is not in lockstep with us on all these issues. Some of them they are, like we've won the battle on minimum wage, we've won the battle on Medicare for all, universal health care, we've won the battle on ending the wars. There's a bunch of stuff where they are with us, but every now and then you get slapped in the face and reminded that your views have evolved more than the public. And so here you have 65% say no, there's no med- uh, medicinal use for psychedelic substances like magic mushrooms. Not only is that not true, 
every single study that's recently been done on magic mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, ecstasy, every single one says there are profound medicinal purposes for this, profound medicinal uses, where it's not even close. Like the studies are crystal clear that these things help a lot of people. And so you knew that, I knew that, 65% of the country doesn't know that. So, and listen, I've always said the most accurate criticism of this show is that I'm repetitive. But the reason I'm repetitive is that it's not like the issues changed overnight. It's not like the, issue, the issues change week to week. It's not like Medicare for All mattered last week and it doesn't matter this week. It's not like minimum wage, $15 minimum wage mattered last week, it doesn't matter this week. No, the reason I'm repetitive is because I have to be repetitive because the issues are the same and they haven't been fixed yet. And so by the same token, I've probably done a dozen segments about how psychedelic substances are great medicine for anxiety, for depression, for PTSD, for whatever it may be, a lot of different things. And you guys probably, by the time you get to the fourth or fifth video, you're like, okay, I get it, Kyle, I get it, I get it, I get it. We have to keep talking about it because if we don't, we're never going to chip away at this. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not putting it all on myself for acting like I'm more important than I am. I'm, I know that I'm not all that important, but we need to get out there this message so that everybody sort of picks up on it and others argue the same thing. And we need to make it the dub position in the same way now that raising the minimum wage is the dub position. Universal health care is the dub position. Ending the wars is the dub position. Ending the corruption is the dub position. We need this to be the dub position. We need everybody to be like, duh, of course psychedelic drugs have medicinal uses. That's their main point. By the way, why have people taken drugs for all these years? It's because they work. Now, don't get it twisted. There are plenty of people who are addicted, not to psychedelics. They're, they're actually uniquely non-addictive. Plenty of people who get addicted to uppers or downers or other substances. And if you're addicted, if you have a real problem, you should get help, for sure. Um, but according to Dr. Carl Hart, who's an expert on this, 80% of all drug users are not addicted. And so the reason why people use it is because these substances work, and you get something out of it. You get a benefit out of it. And so 65% of the country is provably, verifiably, demonstrably incorrect about this. And so it's on you and it's on me and it's on everybody to get out the notion that, listen, psychedelics are very medicinal. And by the way, I'm uniquely biased against this because I'm scared to death of psychedelic substances. Kyle Klinsky is a fan of most drugs except psychedelics because I'm terrified of psychedelics. Because I don't, for me, I like going up or down in my mood. I don't like seeing things that aren't there or like resetting setting my whole framework of the world because I kind of like my framework of the world. So these substances I'm uniquely biased against, but even I can see the empirical data and the studies and the results. So anyway, got to get the word out there, man. Only 65, or excuse me, only 35% say there are medicinal uses. 65% say they're not. Those people are wrong. All of the studies have shown it on all the various substances. And so we need to get the word out there more because the more we get the word out there, the more the polls move, the more we move closer and closer to an inevitable future of winning on these things. Listen, oftentimes the hardest things to change are when it comes to war and when it comes to the financial system. Those are the hardest things to change, the economy. But on social issues, we've made leaps and gains a lot recently, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's legalizing marijuana at the state levels. So eventually on this stuff, we could actually win. So it matters that we change the dialogue. And so we all need to get to that now. Okay, next, final story of the day. We didn't even take a break today. Isn't that impressive? 
So Twitter is at it again. Twitter may start labeling your tweets based on how wrong you are. Labeling your tweets based on how wrong you are. So they're going to have three different categorizations. And um, I forget what they were named, but, you know, basically the worst one is something along the lines of, like, pants on fire. They call it misleading, but it's like pants on fire. And it's supposed to link to some outside source that tells you, hey, here are the facts about this. Um, Now, we don't know for sure if they're going to roll this out, but the person who tweeted about this was correct in regards to other things that Twitter did roll out as well, like the tip jar, among other things. So it's very likely, it's very possible that this does get rolled out, and it's very similar to the, what was the thing, Birdwatch, where, like, other Twitter users could fact-check you or something, or the thing where you tweet, you go to tweet something, and it says, did you read the article? So they're trying to, like, micromanage people on the platform now, and the reason they're doing it is because the media screams at them about the spreading of misinformation. Imagine the irony of mainstream media screaming at anybody else about the spreading of misinformation. The same mainstream media that pushed us into an illegal and offensive war in Iraq based on lies. The same mainstream media that pushed a bogus narrative on Syria. The same mainstream media that pushed Russiagate, that has their own conspiracy theories. The same media that is biased in their own ways. Wrong about a lot of stuff. Wrong about a lot. They're going to argue against others for misinformation. Utter nonsense. But anyway, social media outlets are responding to that pressure. They're like, okay, okay, we'll do something. Well, now they're destroying their own platforms. So this fact-checking thing, the reason why it's dumb is that nobody should trust the ministry of truth that they're creating. Who the fuck is going to be in that ministry of truth? CNN is going to be in it when they get stuff wrong all the time? I don't know if they're going to be in it, but I'm guessing. My guess is also the right-wingers are going to say, how dare you? You need to have some of our outlets as the fact-checkers. So what are you going to do? Get, like, Ben Shapiro's outlet to help fact-check? Daily Wire or whatever the fuck? Get some other nominal right-wing outlets? Get PolitiFact, who, by the way, has repeatedly got stuff wrong. They just had to correct an article on the lab leak theory for COVID because they originally said it was pants on fire. Now they're like, man, maybe not so pants on fire. So who's going to watch the Watchmen? You can't create a ministry of truth because nobody has a monopoly on the truth. We're all trying our best. And by the way, we all have our own ideological framework and prism that we view the world through. So why are we pretending like anybody could have all the knowledge in the world? So I don't trust how they're going to fact check this. I don't trust who, whoever would make the decisions. And you shouldn't either. And so I think it's a terrible idea. And... There's no way you could roll it out effectively, and also it's going to piss people off. So I think it's a terrible idea, which means they're probably going to do it. And, you know, it's amazing that these social media platforms have been baited into destroying themselves, whether it's YouTube with the algorithm, whether it's Twitter with the constant nonstop fact-checking and, and badgering of their own users or deplatforming or what have you. It's just a mess, man. It's just a mess. And um, I really think that all of these outlets need to be public utilities, and they need to be regulated in accordance with the First Amendment. I think that's the only way out of it. All right, guys, we are done. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your week. We got an awesome Crystal Kyle and Friends coming up this week with Rose McGowan. Definitely check it out. 
I'm Al, y'all. Love you. Peace.